before I got on the following call to have this conversation, I watched a video with an incomparable woman named Ms. Viola Fletcher. She's 107 years old and she has survived the unimaginable. It's hard to say I'm excited. I'm really looking forward to speaking with my following guests about what Ms. Viola Fletcher experienced, who he is and what he's doing, and why he's decided to write a book about an incident in history that people wish we would forget about and would sweep away. I've watched recent shows about it, seen a lot of interest, and I hope that as we discuss what I'm not mentioning, because I, I want my guest to bring it up, that you will listen and understand why this conversation will illustrate why so many Black families have headwinds financially. If you could do me a favor and introduce who you are and what you do, I would appreciate it. My name is Kevin Matthews II. I'm a native of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I am an author and former financial advisor. That was a really quick intro. <laughs> Sorry. I can, I can, you never know, like, are we talking elevator pitch? Or are we talking like... <laughs> All right. So <laughs> no, no, I, I, that, I'm going to keep that in the show. Okay. <laughs> so I brought Kevin on today. We're going to talk about something very heavy. So it's actually good that we started with a joyful noise, which was laughter. Could you talk about how you got into the personal finance space and what your initial mission was in the beginning? I got into the personal finance space nearly 11 years ago in 2010. As I mentioned, born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is known as Black Wall Street. And for the first time, I got to go to Wall Street in New York City, apply for an internship with a company that's now Voya. I believe they were, they were ING investment management beforehand. So you throw this Oklahoma kid in the middle of Wall Street, you know, walk by the stock exchange every day. And I was utterly confused for 10 weeks. They were throwing all these terms and investing just things at me every day. And it, I just, it just didn't stick. I had no idea what it was. My family had never invested. I'd never seen a black financial advisor. And I still wouldn't have seen one until four years after 2010. And I went through that experience. And the second to last day, the second to last day, it just clicked for me. I'm like, oh my God, why didn't you make this simple? Like, why didn't y'all just sit me down, teach me the basics? And I could have been like the best intern ever. And that's when I started my company. That's when I started jumping into personal finance, primarily to make investing simple, really to make money simple, but primarily became to make investing simple, to make it accessible and to show people what you can do with money if you know exactly where to start. And could you elaborate a little bit more on the type of internship you were supposed to be doing or you were working on? Well, so supposed to be doing is, is a good question. <laughs> And I'm not 100% sure of what I was supposed to be doing. What we did, though, what I saw other people do, because I was just a ball of confusion, is that we helped manage people's 401ks. So at oh. the time, 
yeah, at, at the time, again, I didn't know what a what a target date fund is. And basically, people invest their money and we kind of have it on autopilot is what we basically what it was. Now, nobody sat down and told me that it was a year later that I had to figure out what that what that even meant. That's that's what we did. So we kind of put out the marketing materials. They were supposed to be educating people what was going on. We learned a lot about the economy and like what adjustments we were supposed to make based on what was happening in the summer of 2010. I hate to keep pushing on this, but I am completely confused too. So this company is like, oh, hey, you're going to be our intern, but but you don't understand. Like, how did they not know that you did not know? I I don't know. There were a few things that, that I can assume. They either, and I was a, a rising junior, so I hadn't really gotten into like all the hardcore finance classes just yet. So it wasn't okay. until after I'd taken those classes, I'm like, oh, okay, this makes sense. So either A, they assumed I already had that knowledge or that, you know, it's just an innate thing you just learn from your family about investing. Cause again, I didn't have that, that background knowledge either. Um, and then, you know, I made like little slide decks and stuff that they would tell me, Hey, you need to put this here, go read this material and compare where we are compared to everybody else. I did those little basic rudimentary tasks is what I thought they were. I didn't know what I was doing. I don't think many people <laughs> which is why I'm just like, like, can y'all just give me context of like what the hell we're doing here and what these people do? So the only person I knew what he did, it was a, there was a chief economist there. His name was Gene and he was the most interesting dude because because I had an econ background and I knew he was like, hey, look, this is inflation. This is what's going on. We need to invest in these things. I'm like, okay, I don't know what those things are you're talking about, but it makes sense. <laughs> I, I understand why you're changing up the strategy. And that, and that was it. So I went to a lot of meetings. I slept through meetings, which I probably shouldn't have done. But look, when you don't tell me what's going on and I don't have nothing to do, that's what happens. I'm imagining it, it's funny because I, you know, Oklahoma is similar to Colorado and I went to school in upstate New York. And right now I really am understanding how confused you were <laughs> yeah. and, the, and the culture <laughs> shock and there, there was a lot happening. So you decide to create this project basically Talk about, very briefly, because this conversation is going to be about something else, but talk about just starting it up and being ballsy enough to do it, figuring out what it was that people needed to know. I would say that journey really started out of frustration because a part of that, I would say the, the most memorable in, like thing I did that internship is, is do what they called back testing, where we would say, look, if you invested in, in our fund five or 10 years ago, you would have X amount of money today. So I started doing that with, you know, just curious. I'm bored, downtime. I'm, you know, 19, almost 20. And I say, okay, well, what did my parents invest in Apple in, in 1989? Like, where would I be today? And I realized I would have had $800,000. I'm like, whoa. Oh, snap. I'm like, hold up. <laughs> you mean to tell me that for $83 a month from, from 89 to 2010, I could have $800,000 today? Oh, no. Like, <laughs> oh, like y'all slept who have you not been telling about this amazing thing called investing? And like, why did my parents miss out on decades worth of money like that? Why? So that's when, that's when I started it. And I went from, I started my college dorm room. I would like hold little workshops. I would go from dorm to dorm. I wrote a terrible little blog because nobody read it at that point in time about you need to be investing your money. You need to be saving. Like you can do all these things and you can be rich one day. Y'all really got to Y'all got to do this like now. And it was just out of, out of urgency, out of frustration, because I was really upset that nobody knew about it. You know, I asked my dad, like, have you ever invested in a stock? I was like, no, what is that? And I'm just like, 
how many people don't know and how many people don't have access because they weren't you know lucky enough to be in a position that I was to experience it firsthand. One of the things I was thinking about as you were describing this internship was the other interns around you. And I'm curious in your observations of the, like who was there with you and did it seem like they got it or they or they did they know what was going on as far as you could tell? As far as I could tell, no. And the program I did, they put, I think it was close to like 20 of us and they, they split us across maybe 10 or 15 different companies. So some of us were like at the same company, but on different floors doing different things. Others were like on the same group, like on the same floor. So they were like clicked up together, like the Morgan Stanley group. <laughs> um, so some, some people knew, and also we were a bunch of different ages. So there was, there was one guy who was like a, a junior going into his senior year and he, he got a job from it. He knew exactly what he was doing, but he wow. also had like more advanced classes too. Um, but I would say it was half and half. Half of us had no idea what was going on and never had like a real job. I worked at a gas station before this. And so I, you can see what my like complete culture <laughs> shock was. And you have some people like, yeah, I've done this before. This is like my third year doing this. So it, it was, it was different, I, but I was somewhat isolated. It was two of us that worked there, but the, the other one was on a completely different floor doing all types of other stuff. Um, but I was, I feel like I was the one that was the most confused. It's now 2021, even though I want it to say 2022. And you are now an expert in this field. You've, you've grown your expertise. You've learned. You've worked these different roles. And um, today, I, want, I brought you on the show because I wanted to talk about a project that you have been working on and is very much a heart-driven and mission-driven um, area of focus. And... Um, I think in the times that we are in, where we literally have been living through fascism, I'm going to say it, building wealth and empowering ourselves in as many ways as we can is so important. But understanding our past is even more important, I think, for context. If you could share the project that you've been working on, which is a book, and why you decided to release it now, I would Love that. The book is From Burning to Blue Parent, Rebuilding Black Wall Street After a Century of Silence. And it is one of the more unique books on the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre in a few ways. So first, from someone, I, I give my perspective and the perspective of, of my family of having lived in Tulsa and the frustration of what it was like and what it's like right now to have such a terrible secret pretty much hidden from you. It was not required to teach the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre up until last year when my father had to get the bill passed. My dad did not know about the Tulsa Race Massacre until he was in his 30s. And to give you context, we live in the historic Greenwood District. So the, the area that was burned, the area that 300 African-Americans died, we were completely unaware of for decades. My parents were un unaware of, of for decades. And it wasn't until the 90s, uh, the Oklahoma City bombing is when, when the world found out what it was, because at that point in time, we were being introduced to domestic terrorism prior to 9-11. To and when that occurred, people in Tulsa who were still survivors at that point in time said, look, something happened here, we need to talk about this, we need to study this. And that's why in 2001, in 2001, this was the first time that the state even investigated what exactly happened and put out a report to, to show you exactly how 
backwards and how hidden this chapter in history was. And again, as I mentioned, we still have not found those 300 bodies to this day. And I actually want to cut you off. And the reason why is this, we can't mm-hmm. assume that people listening to this show know what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us what we're actually like, just explain what it is, what, what this, uh, what this massacre is that we are discussing? What happened? Yeah. So in 1921, we're really, let's, let's back up because a lot of people make the mistake in just starting in the year 1921. So we'll start in the year 1919. This was what was known as the Red Summer. This was following World War I. And primarily African-American men had gone on, fought in the war and come back home. They were trained, armed and organized. And that put fear in a lot of white people across the US. And in Tulsa, Oklahoma, it was known as Black Wall Street. It was one of the wealthiest Black communities, self-sustained, all-Black-owned business district in, in the country, one of the wealthiest um, we had ever known and had seen at that point in time. So for, for a few years, this, this was a shining city, if you will. And on May 30th of 1921, a man named Dick Rowland, who uh, attended the same high school I attended in 2008, wow. uh, was going downtown, um, he had entered an elevator and the the story goes that he tripped and frightened a young woman named Sarah Page. She screamed out and a frenzy pretty much broke out. So the, it was reported in the newspaper that he had attacked um, this, this young woman and the police- I, I'm gonna assume that she's a white woman and he's black. Yes, 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 yes. He was okay. black, she was white. And mm-hmm. he tripped on the elevator, she screamed, one person heard it, they reported it to the cops. Um, and he was he was later arrested. Now, charges were not actually ever brought. She, you know, went to the police station. They look like, you know, he just fails. No big deal. However, that's not how uh, that's not how justice works uh, in, in the eyes of, of angry white mobs at that point in time. So you had thousands of white people gather at the Tulsa courthouse to hang him. That's what Tulsans did. Um, the history of Tulsa shows that Years prior, that Tulsa itself, the white mob, actually lynched two white people years before. So this is if a if a white person couldn't get away with uh, such a quote unquote heinous crime, you know for mm-hmm. a fact a black man in 1921 would not be able to do the same. So a, a group of black men, again from World War One, trained, armed, organized, went to the courthouse and say, "Look, we are here to protect him. We're not going to let them lynch a black man just like they." just like the police didn't protect uh, the two white men that were lynched years earlier. Uh, there was a struggle that broke out between two men, uh, one white, one black, one shot was fired and the massacre ensued. Um, black people were outnumbered close to 20 to one. And that's where um, you know the entire district was burned. 300 people, 300 black people died. Uh, within 48 hours, this Tulsa city council passed a law which essentially prevented black people from rebuilding and that is how systemic racism works. A lot of these patterns are still existing today. And that, you know, in a, in a nutshell, that is what happened during the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Why did you decide to write your book? What is it that you're trying to get people to understand as it relates to Black wealth and this historical, you know, I can't even think of the right way to even and this massacre. I wrote the book for a few reasons. The, the first one is that this is a story that still needs to be told and that it is 
a pattern. And the way that I describe it in the book is that I see the Tulsa Race Massacre as more of a capstone of that brand of white supremacy and white racism at that point in time, because it was not the only time that it ever happened. And Mm -hmm. whether it's Atlanta in 1909 or Wilmington, Carolina, uh, North Carolina in 1898, it's a very, very clear pattern of what continues to keep happening every time that African-Americans start to to make progress in this country. You, for example, you don't really, you didn't really start to see Confederate flags and civil rights movements. You didn't start to see these these monuments start to pop up until Black people start to do something positive. So that was number one, as I wanted to, to draw that clear distinction that every time something happens, everything, every time we start to make progress, there is some reactionary force, whether it be politics or laws, as we're seeing now with uh, voting right bills or voter suppression bills, rather, start to pop up after you start to see progress. That was number one. But number two, and what sets this book apart, is the fact that I give a clear plan on how to build Black generational wealth in today's economy. Because it wasn't, I didn't want to leave it off like, hey, this is this awful thing happened. This is where Tulsa is today and just leave it alone. I want to say, here are some solutions. Here are some things that we can do right now to even the playing field, to, to rebuild Black Wall Street, to rebuild Black, uh, black wealth and walk away from this lesson with with hope and with pride and with uh with a way to move forward did you self-publish this book as well i did you know that i'm a fan of (laughs) (laughs) self-publishing and i wonder do you think this type of book would have been traditionally published i like to think that it could have been i don't think that i had the right timeline to pull that off to be honest Mm -hmm. from the time that you know, I started to to really dig in and realize what I wanted to write about, when I wanted to say it, because I wanted to have it to come out right now during the centennial. I'm mm-hmm. not entirely sure if the traditional publishing process would have allowed me to do that, 18 months to a year or two years rather, for them to get everything together and put it out. I said, look, like I need I need to say this right now. <laughs> and based on what I know, based on what I was learning, this need to be said. So I, I didn't really want to wait on that process. And I had to say what I had to say. So I, I went through the, the self-publishing process to, to get it done. One of the most striking things about what Miss Viola Fletcher and her testimony today that I watched. So she's a 107-year-old survivor of the massacre. And she talked about actually being quite well-to-do prior to that day. And then the impact on her education, on her finances, how she still struggles to this day, a hundred years later as a black woman because of what happened. And I would love to hear, given that we have COVID and, and the impact financially on women and families, and what are a few of the action steps in your blueprint that you suggest? And is one of our saving graces that we have technology now and that can kind of even the playing field in some ways. Yeah, there there are a few. And in in the book I described like there there are two routes and I think these routes go together. So first and foremost, there need there needs to be, there must be policy and reparations that help to support the environment for African Americans to build wealth across this country. And the reason why that is is because there were there was explicit policy to destroy black wealth in this country. So you can't have government policies for decades and decades and decades to destroy it and then expect people just recover organically on their own. So that's number one. But number two, which can also help is employing what I call the the SIP system. So save, invest, protect. 
And that's those are the three buckets that you have to account for in your own personal finances. And then I would say also investing in the market is a very good way to kind of mitigate a lot of that as well. Because what we've seen through history, what we've seen or right now um, of how we're treated in the real estate market and other places, the stock market tends to be, while it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, it tends to be the least discriminatory um, asset class in which anyone, regardless of color, if you if you buy at the, at the same time, the same asset, at the same price, we're going to make the exact same amount. Whereas we've seen in real estate, we've seen in business ownership in terms of who gets capital, in terms of what rate we get in terms of a loan and how how much our house is worth if we if we do real estate, all of those have have proven to be uh, discriminatory. There are different values that people get, whereas the stock market tends to be almost equal. Again, not one hundred percent of the time, but almost equal depending on when you buy and when you sell. I I was thinking as you were talking about investing, the fact of the matter is nowadays you can go online and invest. It doesn't see anything about you other than your deposit. <laughs> you exactly. know, uh, yeah, yeah. And it's it. more accessible. It's way more accessible now than it, than it's ever been before. Like there was no, and I'm not a big fan of, of Robin Hood, but there was no Robin Hood when, when my parents could, could have invested. Right. Like that was, you know, that's, that's why I'm not, I'm never upset at my parents about not investing because there, there weren't any black advisors. There weren't any apps like that back then. So obviously that, that was just the case. Right. Uh, so, so doing that is, is something um, that I think we, the advantage we have now that we didn't have even like 10 or 11 years ago. What, what would you say about the role of FinTech in building black and brown wealth? Um, I, I'm very bullish on it. I love FinTech. I kind of think of FinTech in the way that I think of taxis and, and Lyft because I don't like Uber. Um, all these people didn't want to pick me up, <laughs> but I can schedule a lift and they do. <laughs> and, yeah, so, that's, that's real. <laughs> uh, and so for me, I, I am unapologetically a fan of products that make my life easier without having to navigate around whatever bias, subconscious or conscious you might have about the kind of wealth I may, I may or may not have. So uh, companies like the the ones where you can purchase a car online and they just drop it off in the front of your house. I forget the name of that company, but you know, all of these ways to do the same thing, but differently. So now as a woman, I don't have to negotiate with a sales associate at a car, car dealership because I can just go online. And if I have a solid enough credit rating, I can just order the car online and not, and just cut through the bullshit. So if you could share your thoughts on FinTech and, and the role it could play in helping people build wealth, I would love to hear that. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on FinTech too. I think it is a, an accelerator. I won't say an equalizer because there are still, mm-hmm. depending on what you're looking at, there's some algorithms that if there is implicit bias in it, it's only going yeah. to accelerate that. I think credit scores are, are a good example of that. Like it's, it's a blind formula. However, it tends to hurt certain people a little bit more than others. Um, but but outside of that, again, it, anything that increased access is, is usually a very good thing. And I feel that it does cut out a lot of those those issues. Like in you, like you said, you, you brought it up. But when I was in New York, if I had to, like, we had a strategy to get to the airport. Like if I had to get, we lived in Harlem. It was what felt like 
45 minutes to get to to LaGuardia and like an hour and a half to get to JFK. Mm-hmm. And you have to take a, a taxi. Otherwise, the subway's not going to get you there for another day. Um, <laughs> so, but my wife and I had to split up. So she would go in one direction of traffic. And, you know, if it's a, a two lane street mm-hmm. and uh, she would almost always hail a cab before I was. She, she's a black woman. But just as a black man, for whatever reason, well, let's not say whatever reason, we know, um, I, I could almost never hail a, a taxi on my own. They would wow. pull up for, for people in front of me or they would pull up for people behind me. And every time we would split up, they would go to her and then we just kind of rushed the car together for us to get places. And once we had found a lot of these ride hailing apps, that was it. That was the end of that, right? So it allows to cut that out. When it comes to investing, it, it used to cost tens of thousands of dollars for, for you to have a financial advisor. Um, in my case, when I was an advisor in New York, you had, a 200, you had to have $250,000 to knock on my door. If you didn't mm. have it, don't show up. And <laughs> as rude as it was, that's that was our operation. And it's one of the reasons I left. I'm like, you're not going to find as many Black folk who have that that level of money. Like I couldn't talk to my own parents. I'm like, this, this is not what I want to do. Like I want to help the people who need the help. Um, and, and and the good thing about a lot of these apps is they've, they've cut a lot of that stuff out. They've brought those costs down and it's brought investing to people who really needed it because regardless of the money that you have, it can still grow. And that's the important thing. Even with small steps, as I mentioned, you know, with my parents, that was $83 a month. Like we had $83 a month. And I could have had eight hundred thousand dollars, but I didn't because we didn't have. You mean they, they could have had it? You know, like, they, they had it. I was. You know, I had clothes. I had clothes. You were just along for the ride, okay? <laughs> but the, the thing is, it's about that access, and like now we have the access to do it. And we just have to be able to, to educate ourselves and use it. And a part of the book and, and what I do every day is educating people on like, hey, here's here's a tool that you can use. Here's how to use it. Here's, a, here's some best practices. Now go out and, and, and take action and make a difference. So I saw two really confusing pieces of content out there in the world recently, and I wanted to get your feedback on what you thought about it. One was that Black investors under 40 were investing sim- in, at similar rates to white investors there at you know the same age and then the other piece of content uh, or piece of reporting was that basically black and brown folks have been de- decimated devastated if you will by covid financially and we're like we're so impacted that we've basically increased our our parity date like income parity date if it ever occurs to like 200 years from now how is it that those two pieces of data can coexist at the same time? What are your thoughts? Ooh, and the, and the, the income parity date was still for the same age group? I think so, yes. Okay, so there are a few things. 2020, there was a lot of surprisingly good news and then obviously a lot of, of bad news, the latter stat. I would say one of the reasons why this is, is the case is still, like we saw the biggest jump in African-American investors that we've ever seen. But even so, it's still a very, very small slice of the pie. Um, so there, there's that. And then those who primarily lost jobs and let's not forget the, the wage gap. So even though we invest at the, the same rate, um, that doesn't mean we're investing the same money. So somebody who can invest $100 
may not, you know, 100% of people of, of African-Americans can invest $100, but we're still 17 times less than what the average white investor may have put in. So there's there's that too. We were more unemployed um, during during COVID. So that hurts us as well and less likely to, to recover and get a, um, a job that was paying around the same. So some of that, while confusing, is, is more of the, the data set. But more importantly, you know, there's the rate of people who were investing, but then there's the amount of money that people were investing. And then mm-hmm. we could also go into what people were investing in too. All of those things play play a factor. I do think, you know, black ownership in the stock market is on the rise. I think that is good. Um, but there are some other gains that we need to make across the board, including equal pay. We're wrapping up this part of our conversation because we're going to have the second part of our conversation on my other show where we're, uh, the Brand Building Lab, where we're only going to talk about the, the business end of, of what you're doing. I would love for you to share is why it's important that we read your book. It's important to read my book because it tells the story of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre in a way that has not been seen before. So that's that's number one, because we, we don't only talk about the Tulsa Race Massacre, but we talk about the patterns of white supremacy that exist today, as well as what started this entire thing and how all of these events weave together. And then lastly, it's important because I give a very clear plan on how to build Black generational wealth. I break down everything in a way that that only I can about how to start investing in this environment, how to rebuild Black Wall Street in the 21st century, and then really give ways to, to repair things as much as we can and give solutions and give ways that other Black communities have actually gotten reparations, which not enough people talk about. So um, I talk about the history of, of how it has happened in different communities. Rosewood um, in Florida is one of those, and how places like Tulsa and others can start to follow those types of blueprints. Actually, I have two questions, and 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna say this when, when I asked that question, the underlying thing that I didn't say was why would people care about this this conversation? Like, why if I'm some random middle class black person, why would I? Why would why would this be something that's so important for me to know? And if I'm some random white person out there, why does this impact me? Why why should we care? I care, but I'm asking this. Yeah. In- yeah, I mean, I would I would say number 1, I think anyone should care when you feel that an atrocity ha- has been blatantly hidden from you. Mm-hmm. Um I think also we need to be extremely extremely clear about what the history of the United States is in order to not repeat it. And for example, and we we touch on this a little bit in the book, but for for example, we saw we all saw what happened on January 6th and we made the exact same mistake that we made um, from January 6th that we're making right now that we made after the Civil War. In that, after the Civil War, how many people were actually arrested? How many people were actually like put in jail? That answer was zero. And mm. at this point, you can't let people who betray an entire nation, try to overthrow you, and then let them go home and write history books. So in that case, we're making a very similar mistake. Like obviously there are investigations and things going on right now after January 6th, but you've got people who don't want to investigate what happened. You've got opposition to say, hey, look, we don't want to form a commission to investigate what happened. Let's just, you know, forget that. Um, And we're making the same, the exact same mistakes. And we're going to be in the exact same patterns over and over and over and over again until we learn exactly what happened and learn how to break that cycle, which the book talks about. So that's number one, why it is extremely important. And number two, if you are someone who, who cares about equality, who cares about moving 
you know, a people or even a country forward, you have to learn what those obstacles are and then what the solutions are. And I think that this book, again, provides a very clear plan and path and blueprint on how to do that. Why is the rise in POC personal finance influencers so important? Because there are different paths to building wealth and there are different barriers that have made it more difficult for certain people to, to build wealth in, in this country. And when you only have one voice that has one plan, you're, you, that's not the most customized plan. We, we've learned that personal finance is personal. There are people who are first generation to the US, that's a very different path than, than mine. And that voice needs to be heard. There are people who have, you know, can afford not to ever take on student loan debt and just pay for everything in cash. That's cool for you. That wasn't my story. <laughs> you know? I don't want to talk about that right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, the I'm not pain. Even, I'm, just, I'm just, I'm just saying, right. Then you also have people, you know, like, like, like me who first generation college grad went to historically black college. There are certain things I had to learn being the first one to move 1200 miles away for school. Right. So uh. Everybody has their own story and collectively, like we all have our own audiences who share a lot of the things that we share. So those voices need to be heard. I'm glad there are so many platforms for so many types of voices to be heard because especially for, for people of color, right? Like there, you've got you know, people from, from the islands that have a very specific niche that believe certain things. We learned um, at a, a, my previous job in New York City that yes, the average wealth for African-Americans or for, I'll just say for black folk in Boston is $8. However, when you split that out between African-Americans, those from the islands, those from, from African nations, those numbers are, are wildly different because of culture. And those voices need to be heard for each one of those groups because how you came here, what, what level of wealth you came from, what barriers are, are in front of you that may not have existed in other areas really matter. And we have to have those conversations because we just put a broad brush like, hey, all, all you brown people, this is just bad for everybody. That's not exactly the case. And each of us have our own paths. That's why it's so important for each of us to have our own voice. I got you fired up. <laughs> you did? <laughs> I was like waiting for it. So Kevin, uh, we're about to have the rest of the conversation on the Brand Building Lab. If you could share again who you are, how we can find you, where we can purchase the book. I will have all this information in the show notes as well. That would be fantastic. Yeah, my name again is Kevin Matthews II. You can find me on all things social media at Building Bread. You can find the book everywhere books are sold, including Target, (laughs) Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and others. At Target, my favorite, favorite place. I need to focus. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. You got got me excited when you said Target. Thank you so much for being on the show. I have begun reading the book. It's such an important story for a couple of reasons that I will address afterwards, but thank you for your time. And I wish you all the best and really, really, really good book sales and hopefully a ton of transformative conversations and policy as a result. Thank you. I appreciate it. 